0: Well, good evening, Charlotte Chapel. It's great to be gathered together again this evening as we worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, My name is Ray, and I serve as one of the elders here at Charlotte Chapel. Uh, And if you're new here this evening, we'd like to extend a special welcome to you and invite you to stop by our Connect corner that's outside just um, to the left of the front doors where you can find out more information about our church family. Uh, Or please come say hello to, to me or to Andy after the service so we can get to know you better. Now, before we sing our first song this evening, I wanted to read uh, for us a song from Scripture. This is in Revelation chapter 15, where we read about believers in the last days uh, who had undergone extreme persecution, and they were in heaven now singing praises to God. And this is the song that they sang. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations, Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. This is our God, brothers and sisters, and we've come to know him through the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's stand and sing to that name that's above every name, the name of Jesus, our Savior. Please stand. Come before God in prayer. Father in heaven, you are our God. You alone are holy. You alone are good. And you've displayed your glory in your creation and in your great deeds of salvation, which we read in scripture and which. We have trusted in Christ. We've come to know personally. But God, when we gather this evening and and sing about your glory and your holiness, God, we see more clearly the ways that we have not loved you as we should. Lord, please search us right now. Know our hearts. Test us and know our anxious thoughts. Show us if there's any offensive way in us any sin that we're holding on to right now. God, have mercy on us. Against you only have we sinned. Please forgive us, Father, according to your grace that you have displayed in Jesus on the cross. As each of us right now thinks about the specific ways that we've rejected you recently, Lord, remind us of Jesus. As we look at our sin, we look even more with faith to the cross, where Jesus took our sin on himself. So thank you, God, that through faith in Christ, you've removed our sin from us, as far as the east is from the west. So now we ask, God, please fill us with the Holy Spirit, that we would walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. Renew a steadfast spirit within us and restore to us the joy of your salvation. That we would speak about your great grace. That we would speak about it to each other and to those who are far from you. We ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, now uh, one of our members, Bethan Miller, is going to come and read our Bible passage for this evening, uh, which is found in 1 Samuel, chapter 18. 1 Samuel, chapter 18, so I invite you to turn there now in your Bibles.
1: After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall, but David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had departed from Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men and David led the troops in their campaigns. In everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. Saul said to David, here is my older daughter Mirab; I will give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. For Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. But David said to Saul, who am I? And what is my family or my clan in Israel that I should become the king's son-in-law? So when the time came for Mirab, Saul's daughter, to be given to David, she was given a marriage to Adriel of Meholah. Now Saul's daughter, Michal, was in love with David. And when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. I will give her to him, he thought, so that she may be a snare to him and so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So Saul said to David, now you have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. Then Saul ordered his attendants, speak to David privately and say, look, the king likes you and his attendants all love you. Now become his son-in-law. They repeated these words to David, but David said, do you think it is a small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I'm only a poor man and little known. When Saul's servants told him what David had said, Saul replied, say to David, the king wants no other price for the bride than a 100 Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hands of the Philistines. When the attendants told David these things, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. So before the allotted time elapsed, David took his men with him and went out and killed 200 Philistines and brought back their foreskins. They counted out the full number to the king so that David might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him his daughter Michal in marriage. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michal loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him, and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. The Philistine commanders continued to go out to battle, and as often as they did, David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers, and his name became well known. This is the word of God.
0: Well, in just a moment, one of our pastors, Andy Patterson, is going to come and speak to us from that passage. Um, But before he does, let's prepare our hearts uh, to hear from God's word by singing this next song, I Want to Know You, Jesus, My Lord. Let's stand and sing.
2: Where are we? Where are we? One immediate answer would be we are 58 Chenwick Place, Edinburgh, EH24RT. Another answer to that question would be we're at the tail end of COVID restrictions and emerging from two years of unusual disruption and change. Another answer just as valid, would be we're a church family that's been meeting in Edinburgh for over 200 years and now gathers in the West End, ministering in a post-Christian secular society. See, all three responses answer our initial question, but all three answer from a different perspective, moving from the specific to the general. Now please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 18. 1 Samuel chapter 18 and the question is where are we? Where are we? And this time let me answer from the general to the specific. You see, we're looking at the Bible's big salvation story that runs from Genesis to Revelation. God promised to rescue people for his glory by sending a Savior. And this Savior was going to be a prophet and a priest and a king, all combined in the one person, one who speaks God's word to people. One who savingly brings people before God. And one who reigns over all people for their good and for his glory. And what we're seeing in 1 Samuel is the kingdom of Israel, which is a picture of God's kingdom, being established. Twelve disparate tribal groups are being forged into one entity into one nation. And God sends a prophet, Samuel, who gives them the king that they ask for. But this king, Saul, fails. He's not a man after God's heart. He doesn't live in dependence on God. And God in his love allows the people to see the weakness and the inadequacy of such a man. And as we begin to focus down to the events of recent chapters, we've started to see that Saul is losing the kingdom. We have seen in earlier studies how God said, I'm going to take it from you. I'm going to give it to another And we noticed how in secret the prophet Samuel had gone and anointed as future king the youngest son of a fairly insignificant family who lived in a fairly insignificant town called Bethlehem. And last week, we saw how this raw youngster demonstrates such trust in God and jealousy for his honor that he takes on a Philistine military champion called Goliath and he takes him down with just one stone. And now, this evening, our view gets even closer and sharper as we focus down on chapter 18 following those events that toppled Goliath, that delivered Israel, that scattered the enemy. Now, you might think that King Saul would be delighted with young David. And initially he was. David continued to strengthen Israel's territory by defeating Philistines wherever he encountered them. And so he rose up within the ranks of Saul's army. But Saul's jealousy was to get the better of him. Go to verse 6. Women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They've credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Now there's been so much written about Saul's condition. Academic papers from a wide range of psychiatric professionals have appeared commenting on King Saul, with most seeing here either paranoid schizophrenia or bipolar disorder in Saul's behavior. But whatever it was, and the Bible suggests there was more to this than just the physical condition, we see anger and jealousy building up to murderous and irrational fear. Indeed, the Bible writer, as you may have noticed, describes this as an evil spirit from God. But we must actually be careful that this doesn't mean something inherently and morally evil. But rather, this is a spirit that exposes to Saul his failure, his lack of repentance. It's a a spirit that reveals his lost and ruinous condition and thus brings out in Saul wrong. And wicked responses. So little wonder we read in verse 10 that Saul was raving away. Uh, you, in our translation here, the NIV translation, it has the word prophesying. You will discover in other translations, it's probably better to say here that Saul was raving away. And despite the skillful playing of the lyre by David, Saul threw a spear in an attempt to To kill him. And it would appear that David understood this not as something directed to him out of hatred, but rather it was just an outbreak of Saul's recurring madness. It wasn't here that sort of David is going, he's got it in for me. I don't think David saw that at all at this moment in time in the story. Rather, it was more like, it's another bad day at the office. You know, Saul's going through another of those accounts, and you know, getting spears chucked at you was just one of those occupational hazards that happened at such a time as this. But we, the readers, are given an insight into what is happening. It's there in verse 12. It's a summary of what is going on. Verse 12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had departed from Saul. And uh, this is underlined for us there in verse 14. In everything he, that is David, did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. And then in verses 28 and uh, carrying on into verse 29, it says, When Saul realized that the Lord was with David, verse 29, Saul became still more afraid of him. So this all sets the scene for understanding this chapter. And we might break it up in two ways. Some respond in fear towards God's anointed one. Some respond in love towards God's anointed one. So let's take that first heading. Some respond in fear towards God's anointed one. Just have a look at Saul's reaction He was afraid, verse 12. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David. Verse 15. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. Again, verse 28 to 29, as we've just seen, when Saul realized that the Lord was with David, Saul became still more afraid of him. And this fear turned into plans to get David killed we notice that he offers his oldest daughter Merab to David in marriage. After all, actually, he would promised her to whoever defeated Goliath, so he couldn't lose face over this. But the same, at the same time, he hoped that such a marriage alliance would force David into more campaigns against the Philistines, and of course, he hoped that David would be among the casualties. But as David expressed concerns, Whether he was ever worthy to be the king's son-in-law, Saul's bitter and irrational behavior saw him change his mind and give Mirab to another man. But then another daughter comes onto the scene, Michael, and she's actually in love with David, which was a rarity in marriage arrangements those days. So Saul again sees an opportunity, and on hearing that David is worried about finding uh, enough to pay the bride price, he lets it be known that a hundred Philistine foreskins would suffice. Now, not only would such a thing make sure they were Philistines and not Jews, it would also increase the resolve of the Philistine soldiers to fight fiercely if they knew what might lie ahead. Surely this would get David killed and off the scene. But sure enough, the Lord is with David. David does his usual and he goes well beyond what Saul had asked and he provides 200 foreskins. And so Saul's fear and his paranoia grows. What's it going to take to get rid of this man? You know, I I think there are three reasons why Saul responded in fear to God's anointed one. Firstly, his own pride was challenged. He couldn't stand David being praised more than him. The song of the women really riled him. His own pride was challenged. Secondly, his own identity was threatened. You see, he was the king. He was in charge, and and yet he became aware that God's chosen king was there to displace him. He'd no longer be in control. He'd have to bend the knee to another. His own identity was threatened. And thirdly, his own need was exposed back there in verse 12. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. You see, Saul had no peace with God. He knew something was missing. There was an emptiness that had been exposed by David's godly character. And could I suggest that these same reasons... Describe those who reject the claims of Jesus Christ upon their own lives even today. See, David was but the pale forerunner to the one that God would send to be the ultimate deliverer. For Jesus certainly challenges our pride You see, his life and words expose how spiritually bankrupt, how morally flawed we are. And although we try to compare ourselves with others to make us look and feel better, the reality actually is that Jesus reveals that we're each fractured and broken to the very core of our being. It's a real challenge to our pride. You come along to hear, the Bible preached and what you will discover from the Bible is it's not saying, hey guys, you're really good people, look at you, you're wonderful, you're in church. But actually the Bible message is we're failures, we're sinners. We are incapable of pleasing a holy God. We're not here to learn how we, in our own strength and power, in our own morality and religiosity, can somehow reach up to God. The Bible message continually, clearly, is that we are failures. It is painful, It hurts our pride to hear these things. Jesus certainly challenges our pride. And Jesus threatens our identity. You see, we thought that was for us to decide. That we were to glory in our unique individuality. That I had decided inside of me at some time, somewhere. But... King Jesus takes the higher place. And that changes everything. My worth and value is to be found in knowing and following him. He is my glory and my pride. My meaning, my identity are rooted in being joined to him. That is the primary identifier of who I am. I am a follower of Jesus. It changes everything. It threatens our identity. And thirdly, Jesus exposes our need. A peace in life, a joy in serving, a purpose in living, a confidence in dying, a cause worth following, a community worth joining, a creator worth knowing, our hearts ache after such things we sense we know that we are incomplete without them and only in Christ are they to be found we might go searching everywhere to try and find them to find that satisfaction we know something is missing we we feel that incompleteness And Jesus exposes our need. He says, I'm the one. If you're going to find that completeness and that wholeness that you are looking for, that your soul is aching for, it's in me. So I wonder whether you're here this evening and you're you're holding out against the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ upon your life. Because you're just fearful of what it means, of what it will entail if you surrender to him. Well, my friends, consider our second point. Our second point, remember, is this. Some respond in love towards God's anointed one. Some respond in love towards God's anointed one. See, the writer deliberately shows us that although Saul's attitude was one of fear, others reacted in completely the opposite way. We see this generally there in verse 5. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. Or take verses 15 to 16. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him, but all Israel and Judah loved David. Because he led them in their campaigns. And more specifically, this becomes apparent within Saul's own family. And and here the writer is giving us this delightful sense of irony. There's his daughter. Verse 20. Now Saul's daughter, Michael, was in love with David. Her dad feared him, hated him. His daughter loved him. And then with his son, let me read verses 1 and 3. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. Verse 3, and Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. In fact, what then takes place is packed with significance and is often misunderstood, but is, it is a wonderful illustration of the depth of his love. Have a look at verse 4. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. Now, in our highly sexualized culture, we interpret taking clothes off in a sexual way. But to the Middle Eastern reader, it had a completely different meaning. For example, in a leading commentary, they write this. To receive any part of the dress which had been worn by a sovereign or his eldest son and heir is deemed in the East the highest honor which can be conferred on a subject. For there's a sense, you see, that wearing the clothes of another identifies you with them and what they do, identifies you with their person, identifies you with their position. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you'll be aware of this from other places. For example, Numbers, chapter 20, verses 25 to 27. God says, get Aaron and his son Eliezer and take them up Mount Hor. Remove Aaron's garments and put them on his son Eliezer, for Aaron will be gathered to his people. He will die there. Moses did as the Lord commanded. They went up Mount Hor in the sight of the whole community. Moses removed Aaron's garments and put them on his son Eliezer. You see the significance. It's the passing on of that role, the identification with the person and their position. Or take Esther. Esther 6, verses 6 to 9. And again, you may remember this. this. This lovely piece When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn. And a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Do you see the significance, the king's robe on this man? No higher honor. So you can see the rich significance of what Jonathan does for David. It's as if Jonathan is renouncing his position. It's as if Jonathan is giving over the right of succession to David. You're the true king, he's saying. And by the way, we'll come across this again over the next two Sunday evenings. You see, this is true love. This is a love that doesn't look to one's own interests. This is Love that gives completely to the object of affection. This is the sort of love that we're all wired to want. Actually, this is the sort of love perfectly modelled by Jesus himself. Philippians 2, verses 6 to 8. Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage... Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So you see, the response of Jonathan to David is exactly what someone does when they've come to see the Lord Jesus Christ as their loving King And Savior. They give everything to Him. They surrender their right to be in charge. It's as if they take the crown off their own head. Here I am, I'm the boss of my life, but I've seen Jesus for who He is, the King, the one who loves me. It's like they take the crown off their own head and say, Jesus, Jesus, you reign, you rule. You're worthy. It's as if they bring every area of life before Jesus. And they say to Jesus, Jesus, you're in charge. Take control. If you're not a believer, then could I suggest to you here's the love that you're looking for, a love that can be trusted and enjoyed, a love that's worth surrendering yourself to. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're here this evening and you say, yes, I am, I'm a Christian, I've, I've put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then could I say to you again, abdicate that throne. It doesn't belong to you. Let Jesus have his rightful place over everything. Let him be king. Over your relationships. Over your possessions. Over your future. And then maybe you'll be able to sing with us. Crown him with many crowns. The lamb upon his throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. We may have songs to sing saying, look at me. I'm great and I'm good and I'm worthy of praise. But the heavenly anthem of acknowledging that Jesus is king. It drowns all music but its own. Awake, my soul, and sing of him who died for thee. And hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. Well, will you do that, not just in song now, but would you do that in your life? Let's stand and sing this together. To be seated and let me close in prayer. Father, we do ask indeed that we would have that sight, that insight that was given to Jonathan so that he saw in David the anointed king, the pre-runner of the Savior, the Lord Jesus, and help us to see Jesus as the one who is supremely worthy, who is the King of kings, the one who should be crowned with every crown that there could be. Lord, may we not be like Saul, so fearful of how it may affect our own interests, but may we be taken up with his interests and his worth and his wonder, and Lord, enable us to make Jesus king of our lives in every area. Father, I pray for those here this evening who are struggling in areas of obedience, And pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would bring conviction of those things where they are not giving King Jesus complete reign. May he rule over every area. May we acknowledge him as Jonathan acknowledged David. May we acknowledge Jesus as the king. So be with us as we go into this week. May the life of the king be seen in us, we pray, for his glory and praise. Amen.